Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by Wix.com and SeatGeek. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of April 29th, 2019. Quickly, our Game of Thrones recap. Ah! Okay, that's it. What a crazy episode that was. But there you go, since everybody's talking about it. But on this episode, we're going to talk about the Chicago White Sox, as it was a crazy weekend for the White Sox. Seven-run comebacks, walk-off home runs, 20 strikeouts, snow, overrunning your teammate on the bases after hitting a home run, and of course, some major injuries. Whew, there's a lot to cover, and we're going to touch on all those topics Plus, our guest this week is author Danny Nobler, who has written a new book called Unwritten, Batflips, The Fun Police, and Baseball's New Future. We'll talk about Batflips, specifically Tim Anderson, and how Major League Baseball has evolved over the years and how much it still needs to change. Jim will cover what will happen down to the farm in the minor league report and will answer your questions in P.O. Sox. We've got a lot of show to cover, so let's get started, as I'm now joined by the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Vilar Margulis. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I mean Jim Margulis. Hello, Jim. What a weekend for White Sox baseball. Uh, Valar Margulis, that's the only thing I really know about Game of Thrones that sounds, or people have confused with my last name, so I'm glad we're not talking about that because that's (laughs) all I would have, and maybe I'd make a Storm Throne reference and that would be about it, but... No, it was it was a uh, great weekend for White Sox baseball. It was a homestand where 
fans went to both games and fans came away probably wanting to go to another White Sox game, which is not always the case, especially two games in a row. You know, one major comeback, one record-setting pitching performance, uh, something for everybody, uh, assuming everybody's a White Sox fan there. Yeah, the first game of the series on Friday, I could understand if fans had left the game early. It's the White Sox were down 8-1, to one, but some way, somehow, they come all the way back and win 12 to 1 in thanks to Tim Anderson's walk-off home run, another bat flip which was totally warranted. And Jim, <laughs> I watched this from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. As you guys will listen later on, I got a chance to go to Charlotte and Winston-Salem got to talk to Luis Robert, Dylan Cease, Danny Mendick, Charlie Tilson, and uh, you'll hear from Dylan Cease later in the show. But I, after the game against the Dash, I'm sitting at Foothills Brewery watching on the, my phone through the I've the been app. there. Yeah, it's a great place. And uh, I watched the walk-off home run, and I'm with uh, Kim's dad, Roy, who tagged along for the trip. And I look at Roy, and I tell him, I have no idea how Jim is going to recap this game. And you did a wonderful job, but you called it, the dumbest game of the year. After a couple days, do you think it is still the dumbest game of the year? Uh, yeah. And, I, and I, when I say dumbest, I mean dumbest like you would call like a dog you love dumb, like a, you know, a, a golden <laughs> retriever, just adorably dumb. That's that's how I, I look at it. I think there are, there are going to be dumb games that are you know infuriating or frustrating or just sad and pathetic. But in terms of dumbest, the way I'm using it, yeah, I mean. A runner passing another runner on a home run uh, pretty much seals it, especially like, uh, you know, uh, go ahead homer after trailing eight to one and having uh, Eloy Jimenez nearly kill himself on the fence. Just so many things happened in the game. So many bad things happened. So many good things happened. And it was just a weird tangle peak rebuild type thing between two bad teams. And uh, and I think we should all be thankful we were there to witness it. Now, the White Sox won the game, but there's some serious impact from that game, and it goes with Eloy Jimenez leaping into the wall. It looks like that his foot got caught in the wall, mm -hmm. and he ended up twisting his ankle. It is a high ankle sprain. He will be going to the injured list, and according to the Chicago White Sox, he'll be reevaluated in two weeks as he's in a walking boot right now. I spoke with some medical professionals. Obviously, they're not working on Eloy Jimenez's ankle at the moment uh, I doubt anyone can actually speak to those people to speak specifically on his case but typically to get a better understanding of the high ankle sprain recovery usually takes about six weeks so we could possibly see Eloy Jimenez for he may miss the entire month of May Jim and maybe even going into June uh, what is the impact you believe with the injury? Obviously, it's 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 a blow to Jimenez's development, but how big of an impact is it to the White Sox? Uh, there there are some ways they can use those bats, but none of them would be as good as letting Jimenez have them. You know, both for fan friendliness and ultimate development for the franchise. So yeah, it's it hurts, um, and it was weird because. Yeah, I wrote about it. I've been taking screenshots of like all these awkward encounters Jimenez has at the warning track. And for whatever reason, like, you know, Jimenez has like, you know, 
three of them in a game, uh, his last game in Detroit, and then he goes in the bereavement list. Nicky Delmonico takes over in left field for a series. Nothing happens to Nicky Delmonico. He just has a bunch of random fly balls that he's able to lope over and park under, and you know, occasional singles come in his direction, but he doesn't have to go sprinting to the gap to cut him off or anything like that. He has a really easy series in the left. Then Jimenez comes back third inning, gets sent back to the wall, makes this awkward uh, back-to-the-plate jumping attempt, kind of holding his glove up. Uh, trying to hope that it hits it uh, while having like a kind of like a trying to kick a door down. <laughs> That's, I guess, how I can best uh, describe how he's, uh, how his leg is positioned. But yeah, it was just uh, yeah, a terrible attempt. And uh, I'm hoping that, you know, maybe in the six weeks he has off, you know, he's able to watch the game and, and maybe, you know, talk to, I don't know, Daryl Bossner, White Sox personnel, and just kind of get to the point of or why he's, you know, struggling the way he is in the outfield. Because I don't think he was this bad, and you know, from what I saw in, in Charlotte and Birmingham and such, I don't think he was this bad. Uh, maybe you have a different opinion, because I know you've watched your share of games too, but uh, just the awkwardness inherent in all his routes and all his, uh, you know, the way he's pursuing balls and, and the way he's, you know, even like, you know, going to ones in the corners that are rolling there. Uh, everything just looks uncomfortable for him. And I did not expect that. I mean, you know, we, we knew that his defense would need to be improved and, but just everything is so hesitant and awkward and, and it's like, uh, he's never played there before. And, you know, even in spring training, he looked better than this. So I'm really not sure what to make of it. Hopefully maybe in the six weeks, it's kind of like holding a clipboard in the NFL, uh, that you're able to see some things at game speed while sitting there. And maybe that has some kind of effect on, you know, how he perceives things once he gets back in the field. Do you think this is the area of his game where he's adding too much pressure to himself to succeed? As we usually see with rookies in all levels of professional sports, no matter what the sport is. Well, it's it's possible. Uh, I mean, uh, when it comes to to think about the minors and Bryce Bush, uh, he was having a terrible start. He was making all these errors in the field and they decided, okay, you're going to DH for a week. And, you know, as you'll hear in the minor league reports, he had a, he now has a seven game hitting streak. You know, there might be something to being able to compartmentalize these issues and, and let them just hit. Uh, Cause I think he, he's not hitting that well either. He's missing some pitches. He's swinging over sliders and such lefties are giving him a hard time. And, and there might be something to that, to just let him DH or, you know, let him, um, you know, just take a you know, few games off, maybe not a full week, but a few games off just to, you know, get him into the rhythm at the plate and maybe the rhythm of the plate will help him in the field. You know, cause I don't think defense will guide his offense. I think it'll be the other way around. Uh, but I imagine when he's coming back from the ankle sprain that that might be a way to reintroduce him to the lineup because I imagine given the way he's thrown his body around out there that if he's coming off the ankle injury, be it, you know, four to six to eight weeks from now, whenever he comes back, I, I think they'd want to get him to where he's playing every day. And as we've seen with the last uh, few games that he's played in the outfield, uh, putting him in, in left field is kind of a hazard to his health. Yeah, I do really wonder if he does come back. I I think he's got to be the DH for a little while. Now, you be playing into Yonder Alonso's and Jose Abreu's playing time, by making that decision. But this is a conversation we had last week, Jim, about Yonder Alonso's plate appearances. And I'm sorry, Yonder. Eloy needs those plate appearances. And if it's better for him to DH than having him in left field, I think that's got to be the direction the White Sox go, even if it's June, right? We, 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 we hinted at maybe in August or September, but Jim, I, I think it may have to be earlier than that. Yeah, no, I think so. I think that's fair. 
Um, especially uh, Alonzo really isn't lighting it up much, and I think that he could use uh, a platoon partner. He's had a platoon partner basically everywhere he's played, and the White Sox just don't have one right now. Uh, I think we're seeing Jose Rondon in left, and that could be a possibility too. Uh, you know, if Rondon plays it well enough, and if Rondon hits well enough to warrant DH appearances, I could see them going back and forth just to get both at bats. And you know, perhaps uh, you know, if Alonzo's hitting under 200, get away from Alonzo too. So there are some possibilities there. But I imagine when he gets back from his injury, uh, that yeah, DH seems to be the way to incorporate him in the lineup. And then hopefully, when he's hitting, you know, hopefully hitting 300 or around there with the you know, requisite power stats and everything, then maybe they can put him back in the outfield. Maybe everything will calm down for him. Now, the other injuries as well for the Chicago White Sox, Nate Jones is going on the injured list due to inflammation in his right elbow. That's not good news. Ryan Burr is also going onto the injured list with inflammation in his right shoulder. So we'll see what the long-term diagnosis is for both Jones and Burr for the White Sox bullpen. Loses two at the moment. The pitchers replacing both Jones and Burr is Tiago Vieira and Aaron Bummer from Charlotte. And Jim, just touching on with Nate Jones, he's gone through so many injuries. And it seems like we consistently stay in this cycle where we never know if Nate Jones is going to be productive or healthy enough to provide great value to the White Sox, whether it's on the field or possibly used as a trade. Is this the end of the road for Jones? Uh, you know, it's hard to say it is um, just because the White Sox really seem to like him. And I was fine with the White Sox moving on. I, I was trying to nudge him in that direction uh, during the offseason just because of all this 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 trauma that his body has undergone and the fact that he's in his early 30s now and uh, it, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. And it was a $3.2 million decision, I believe, and... Uh, it adds up. I mean, like, it's not that big of a deal in isolation, just like the Irvin Santana deal isn't that big in isolation. But you guys wrote about in, in Sunday morning's post about Santana that, you know, when you look at Santana, 4.3 million fine. But then you have, you know, Nate Jones, who might be deadish money. And then you have John Jay, who hasn't played. And then you have Yonder Alonso betting under 200. Now you're approaching $20, $20 million of payroll. That is not really contributing all that much, and and in, in in the case of Alonzo, as we're talking about, might be choking off certain parts of the roster, and uh, it's just a disappointing uh, way to allocate resources for a team that seemed to be starved of them when this whole Manny Machado pursuit was going on. So yeah, that's why I wanted the White Sox to to just kind of cut bait and move on. Nothing against Jones personally, just given all the injuries and given all the uh, you know promising right-handed arms that they have to rotate through. It just seemed like uh, they might be fooling themselves a little and it might be best to move on. And maybe this is what does it, you know, maybe not this specific injury, but just another year with injuries getting in the way. And the other note from that game, Jose Abreu has been on fire, Jim. In his last five games, Abreu is 12 for 21 hitting with two doubles, two home runs, 12 runs batted in. And after a cold spell, it's nice to see him start hitting. But I think what I'm going to always remember is him overrunning, running past Tim Anderson. A huge home run, a three-run shot initially. So the White Sox are losing 10-9. Now they're leading 12-10 after replay. Again, I'm watching this on my phone at Foothills Brewery. And I have no idea what the umpires are reviewing. And then you find out in the next replay that Jose Abreu ran past Tim Anderson. 
what happened there? And is that a situation that was avoidable? Well, it's avoidable. It's it's all in Abreu, and it was weird, um, you know, watching the reaction. And first of all, you know, watching the reaction in uh, the broadcast booth, James Fegan was the only one notice, I think, uh, of the people in my Twitter feed that Abreu ran past Anderson and even like uh, Steve Stone and Jason Benetti were very confused and thought it was fan interference, even though there's no way for a fan to interfere in the outfield. Uh, you know, it's not unless they're using like a net or something like that. They can't actually reach over the wall. So there was that. But yeah, it's just it was a Brayu just not, you know, not looking or maybe not anticipating Anderson or thinking he, he I think he thought he flied out to left, just hit a deep fly out. He didn't get all of it. And so he was just kind of absentmindedly rounding the base and Anderson was tagging up, and I saw some people blaming Daryl Boston for not being more on top of it. But you know, I looked into uh, how how uh, you know rare this occurrence is, and uh, I think the last two ones where it was a the batter rounding first ahead of the uh, base runner was 2006 and 1974, the previous two occurrences. So it's not something like Boston needs to be on top of. It's just, uh, you know, base runners are taught that not to pass the guy in front of you and look what he's doing. And Abreu wasn't looking that way. And so he just rounded the base. And so it's, it, it's really with him. Maybe Boston could have done something, but if he's telling Anderson to tag and doesn't think Abreu is going to round the base, you know, that I, I, I really can't see it being Boston unless he like physically intervenes. So I would say it's a Brayu and he'll never do it again. <laughs> and I imagine he'll <laughs> just like plant firmly on first base the way you do in video games. You're not allowed to in video games. You can't pass the runner. It always anchors. You get the base ahead. And I imagine you'll see the same thing. Yeah. Jose Brayu needs to take a page out of Tim Anderson and he just needs to have a more dramatic bat flip that takes more time for him to get out of the batter's box. Uh, <laughs> so he doesn't run past the guy on first base. Uh, good thing that the White Sox won, because that would have been, man. If the Tigers came back and if they had won twelve to eleven, oh my gosh, I don't think we would ever forget that base running mistake. But alas, well, we still won't. We won't. I guess that's a good. <laughs> we point. won't, but it'll be, it'll be at least, uh, uh, you know, adorably dumb. Yeah, adorably dumb, as you as you said, the dumbest game of the year, in a good way. Now, Saturday was canceled. Uh, for all those that live in Chicago, I feel bad for you guys. I'm so sorry that you had to deal with all that snow on Saturday. And that game will be rescheduled as a doubleheader on July 3rd, the day before 4th of July. So if you're taking some extra time off and if you're in the city, uh, there you go. You got a doubleheader before 4th of July weekend. How awesome is that? Uh, but on Sunday, one of the best pitching performances I have seen in a while. Ronaldo Lopez struck out 14 Detroit Tiger pitchers in six innings. 13 of the strikeouts were from his fastball as he and Wellington Castillo worked uh, very well together. It was Wellington Castillo catching, correct? Yes. Yeah. So he and Castillo worked very well, especially on fastballs in the outside corner. Constantly freezing hitters, or the hitters could not catch up. Overall, with Jace Fry, Kelvin Herrera, and Alex Colome, the Chicago White Sox tied the major league record for 20 strikeouts as a pitching staff, uh, which is incredible and obviously sets a new team record. So, a very special day on Sunday for the pitchers. And, Jim, obviously, we start with Ronaldo Lopez, and it seems like his really bad start is starting to turn around. We, 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 we've been seeing progress in the last two appearances by Lopez. 
but I feel like this is the best we've ever seen from him. I would say so. I think we've seen his slider better at times and maybe his changeup better, but in terms of pure four-seam strength, command, movement, everything a fastball is, we haven't seen that kind of uh, dominance from that one pitch alone. And I think that you know it represents, I guess, the peak of his powers. Uh, he's always going to be, at least from what we've seen and what we can expect, he'll always be fastball first, and that I think will leave him a little bit vulnerable in certain starts when he doesn't have fastball command. He doesn't have another pitch he can switch to and, and lean on that really heavily. It's going to be fastballs most of the time, and when he is going right, he's throwing fastball 60% of the time. And But but when he's going right, uh, I think this is what you see. I think you see the the... Both the command and when the command's not there, just the life on it, uh, the, the movement uh, to just uh, fool hitters' barrels, you know, swinging where the ball isn't, the late jump on it is really impressive. And, and his ability to sustain velocity and actually gain velocity. At the end, he had a little bit in his back pocket when he was going to uh, uh, his emergency mode in the sixth inning, trying to get through it, throwing his last pitches of the game. He was hitting 96-97. He wasn't hitting 97 in the first, but... I think that's part of his maturation process. I remember his rookie season when he was uh, laboring in the fourth, fifth innings because he was airing it out in the first and and uh, kind of running out of gas. I think he's been a lot better at conserving his fastball when he's got it, and he's got it. So I think this is the Lopez I thought we would see more often, and uh, uh, you know credit him for making a mechanical switch. I think Don Cooper was on it too, and I think uh, you know there's been some help too along the pitching staff and. Yeah, Castillo seemed to work well with him. So, you know, there might be a case where uh, the catchers have certain pitchers they like working with. And, you know, this might be a pairing to keep an eye on. And, you know, this was a really good win for the White Sox because you can kind of vision where, all right, a starter has a great six inning appearance like Lopez did. And when Jace Fry, who's now starting to turn a corner out of the White Sox bullpen, could take care of the seventh like he did. And Kelvin Herrera, the proven veteran, could take care of the eighth. And Alex Colomay has been doing a really good job as far as the ninth inning for the White Sox. Then this is where you could picture, I don't want to say easy wins, but a good formula for the White Sox to have winning games. Now, Renteria has been careful pitching these guys back-to-back days, especially Colomay and Herrera. And sometimes they have odd appearances in games that maybe they really shouldn't be involved with. But I thought on Sunday, Jim, as far as a pitching perspective – that appears to be a good formula for the White Sox. Have a starter dominate, or maybe not necessarily dominate, but have a very good six innings and being able to hand off the ball and count on Jace Fry, Kelvin Herrera, and Alex Colomay to take it the rest of the way. Yeah, I think Fry is really crucial in that just because, as we saw, when Fry wasn't working and when Jones wasn't working and they really only had Herrera and Colomay and that's it. And they're also guarding Herrera just because he was coming off an injury from last year, so they didn't want to overwork him. But when they only had two relievers, that that, thir- that search for a third reliever is really a mess uh, and, and really ran the risk of overexposing their two only good relievers, then creating a bigger crisis. So, you know, it's really important that Fry's back. And I think Renteria, to his credit, did a really nice job of of guiding Fry through his problems, um, putting him in a, a position to succeed. He wasn't succeeding early against lefties, but he just kept putting him out there against, uh, you know, one batter appearances against lefties or two batters, you know, wasn't facing righties, just trying to get him back on his track to throw his his cutter and his curveball uh, the way he wants to throw it against lefties. 
then once he started getting those outings under his belt, you know, making easy work of those, uh, you know, lefty-lefty matchups the way he did last year, then he put more in his plate, and Fry's responded well. So I think uh, hopefully Fry is back to where he was last year, and if so, then I think, yeah, uh, tip of the hat to Renteria for uh, managing it during the season, not needing to have him go to AAA and figure it out there. Uh, I thought it was very responsible of him the way he did it. And the Chicago White Sox now are 11-14, and 14, and we're going to be previewing the upcoming series against the Baltimore Orioles in a moment. But something we mentioned, Jim, on Sox Machine Live, we talked in great length that results matter. And especially from Friday, there was a moment where I thought, man, they're going to be 5-8 and eight against the Orioles, Tigers, and Royals. And instead, they're now 7-7 seven and seven against those teams. And the 16-game stretch we talked about when it first started a couple weeks ago is now obviously a 14-game stretch with the two rainouts. But the White Sox are 6-5, and five, and they have an opportunity against Baltimore to increase that to 8-6 and six or even 9-5 and five if they are able to sweep. So this could end up being a really good stretch of baseball for the White Sox. And I feel like circling back, it begins with that comeback on Friday. And I know it's just one game, but is that the type of win that could spark maybe a couple of weeks or even a good month of May, a type of baseball, maybe instill more confidence with this team that they are capable of playing really good baseball. I think we'll find out more about uh, this team when Boston shows up and when you have teams that are really uh, armed to compete and in that, in that mindset of contending. Um, right now, I think, you know, it's a good win against Detroit, you know, and it's worth beating Detroit because they haven't beaten Detroit with regularity in quite some time. So having that experience helps and making the Tigers afraid of the White Sox helps. But, uh, you know, this, this stretch of, uh, schedule is so weak and the Tigers bullpen is terrible and the Orioles starting pitching staff, staff is getting rocked. Um, yeah, it's just not... It's, it's not, you know, they're, they're all major league teams, but it's almost like AAA versus the majors when you get to the top of the AL East and, you know, the really good teams that are armed to win. So I think we'll find out more about what these wins meant uh, once they're facing teams that aren't in the same shape that they are. But it, they're all important in terms of uh, respectability and in terms of, you know, gauging their own progress because, you know, as we talked about before, just when they look like they're no better than teams that are two years behind them in the rebuilding cycle, that's not good. So to restore some order to it uh, certainly helps the confidence, if, if nothing else, at least among the teams that they're supposed to be better than and the team that they're supposed to be ahead of when this rebuilding curve you know, actually theoretically puts them in position to make the postseason. Now, can the White Sox make it to 8-6 or maybe even 9-5 and five over this 14-game stretch? We're going to be previewing the upcoming series against the Baltimore Orioles. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. The ticket industry hasn't changed in a long time. There are a bunch of big companies who have been around forever, but really don't care about making the experience easier for the customer. Well, SeatGeek is a ticket company where the customer comes first. With more than 50,000 five-star reviews in the App Store, SeatGeek is focused on making your experience as easy as possible. And how that works is that SeatGeek pulls in millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10 and displays them on an interactive seat map. So it's simple to find what you're looking for. The green dots are great deals. Red dots stay away. They are overpriced. 
Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets with confidence. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy tickets. I find it to be the easiest way I found to shop for tickets. In fact, I use SeatGeek to buy eight tickets for an upcoming MLS match in Portland. When I go there on vacation in July, I'm very excited to experience a Portland Timbers game. I hear it's a blast, and I use SeatGeek all the time to buy tickets for White Sox games. And with seven games coming up in this homestand, I'm sure I'm going to use SeatGeek to go to at least a couple of these games. Against Baltimore, you have tickets as cheap as $5, $6, $7 for the Wednesday game. And with the Red Sox in town, even though it usually brings a lot of fans for that weekend, you can see the White Sox and Red Sox as cheap as $13. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So great deals on SeatGeek right now for tickets remaining on the White Sox homestand. And best of all, Sox Machine listeners get to save $10 off their first purchase. As SeatGeek supports our show, so we hope you support them as well when you need to buy tickets. What you got to do to get $10 off is use our promo code SOXMACHINE. And you can use that for concert tickets, sports tickets, comedy tickets, whatever you need tickets for you can use that promo code. So again, that promo code is Socks Machine for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And now again, this preview between the White Sox and the Baltimore Orioles. Again, the Orioles won the series in Baltimore last week as they won two out of three. The probable pitchers for this series between the White Sox and the Orioles for Monday, April 29th. This is a 7.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is that pesky, soft-tossing, left-handed starter John Means again on the mound for Baltimore who just <laughs> shut down the White Sox offense with his changeup. He's going to be going up against Manny Benuelos who's going to be making his second start as Lucas Giolito is getting healthier and it sounds like his rehab is going well after his hamstring strain but he's not quite yet ready to join the White Sox starting staff on Tuesday, April 30th, again, 7.10 p.m. Central Time, is Andrew Kashner against Ivan Nova. And after the White Sox DFA'd Irving Santana, the spotlight is on Nova to improve his game. And then on Wednesday, May 1st, it is to be determined for both Baltimore and the White Sox. That is a 7.10 p.m. Central Time game, even though it's a getaway day for Baltimore before the White Sox have the Boston Red Sox coming to town for a four-game series over the weekend. So for the White Sox starters here, Jim, uh, obviously Carlos Rodon had a terrible start on Friday and uh, poor Manny Benuelos. He's got to follow up on the tremendous start for Ronaldo Lopez. Um, but yeah, with Irvin Santana being DFA'd, it appears that even if Lucas Giolito does rejoin the starting rotation, that Benuelos could now be the new fifth starter for the White Sox. What are you hoping to see out of him in his second start? Well, I, I like the way he threw, and, and I guess we'll find out as we go along with Banuelos throwing, you know, four to five, six innings, um, how much of his slider usage is intentional. He threw a ton of sliders, basically half his pitches were sliders, and um, as we're seeing now across the league that you know, pitchers are going away from their fastballs and throwing their secondary, you know, their primary secondary pitch uh, as uh, as often as, you know, pitchers would throw their fastballs at times, and that might be the way he succeeds. We're still learning about him, so uh, I'm curious and, I guess, open-minded about, you know, what he'll look like, but, uh, you know, if he pitches like he did the first time, then I imagine we'll see a lot of sliders, and that's okay. And I, I think with Nova, 
he could probably follow that same playbook. His his cutter has really been his best pitch. You know, looking at the damage done against it, or lack of damage done against it, and the swings and misses. Uh, it's been way better than his fastball and better than his curve and his changeup. So, you know, he might be able to take a page from that playbook and 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 use that pitch more often. I think he has the problems not being confident in throwing it for strikes. So he doesn't use it when behind the count. He's been behind in the count a lot. So I, I think that's probably, you know, item one for him. But uh, with, with uh, facing John Means in the opener, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that the White Sox offense does what they did against Daniel Norris. Daniel Norris shut him down. Lefty, they've had problems with him before. But then on Friday, they hit him better. You know, they were still behind and uh, still didn't, uh, you know, cash in a couple, couple of opportunities and they could have made his line even worse, but they, they tagged him for four runs over five innings and looked better. So hopefully getting a second look at a guy within the same week, same results where, uh, uh, they actually stand a chance against a soft tossing lefty with a changeup. Yeah. They got to score some runs. The White Sox offense has to figure out John Means and Andrew Kashner, but it's just not the White Sox. John Means has a 1.74 ERA in eight appearances this year. And he's been baffling everyone right now. So we'll we'll see if the White Sox can figure out John Means. And, of course, Andrew Kashner. Uh, I feel like Andrew Kashner's prime trade target <laughs> come around July, Jim, uh, for Baltimore to move. Um, but right now he's 4-1 on the year with a 4.18 ERA. So hopefully the White Sox offense can figure out both John Means and Andrew Kashner. And we'll let you guys know on who will be starting the game on Wednesday for both Baltimore and Chicago when that when those roles get figured out again. Follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. Once we get the updates, we'll let you guys know as well. But that will do it as far as recapping the Tigers series and previewing the upcoming series against the Baltimore Orioles. Jim, you and I will reconvene later in the show. But coming up next on the Sox Machine podcast, people are still talking about bat flips and Tim Anderson, especially after his walk-off home run against Detroit. And with Major League Baseball kind of having an issue with bat flips, even though they promote it, uh, there are still players that are fed up with them, they don't like them, and pitchers are making it known. Uh, What does this say about the culture of baseball? Well, author Danny Nobler joins us next to discuss that very topic on the Sox Machine Podcast. A quick word from our sponsor, Wix.com. Let's say you run a small business or thinking about launching one or you have a big event upcoming like a wedding, or maybe you want to get your voice heard and decide to launch your own blog or podcast. You'll need a website to help launch, and there is no better place to get started than at Wix.com. Over 140 million people use Wix for their website because it's easy to get started and publish for free. You can choose from 500 stunning templates, or if you have some design chops, you can make your own from scratch. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found online easily on Google, and every site is automatically optimized for any device, whether you're looking at it from a PC or mobile device. Wix even has built-in tools like storage, custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and e-commerce. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your entire business or a simple place for you to share your talents to the world. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. 
Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. The culture of baseball is unique. It involves players from different backgrounds coming from different countries clashing in the clubhouse. Sometimes it works. Oftentimes it doesn't. And that frustration spills onto the field. As Major League Baseball wants the kids to play, how far does the league need to go to achieve a status that bat flipping is okay? And how far has the culture of Major League Baseball come in the last 50 to 60 years? Well, join the Sox Machine podcast as the author of a new book called Unwritten, Bat Flips, The Fun Police, and Baseball's New Future. National writer for Bleacher Report, it's Danny Nobler. And hello, Danny. Thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I don't think you could have picked a better time to release a book about baseball's culture and the aftermath of what's happened with the White Sox and Tim Anderson. Uh, This is a great book, and I think you do a good job documenting how baseball has evolved over the years. But I get the impression at times that sometimes baseball doesn't want to change. How would you describe the culture of Major League Baseball today? Well, I think there's been a lot of change. I, I would agree with you that there are at times a resistance to change in baseball. Uh, it's a very traditional game, and there's a lot of people who guard that tradition very carefully, uh, inside and outside the game. I'm talking about both fans and players and managers and coaches and front office people. However, the game changes all the time, and I think it makes sense to know that, and it has changed. Nothing in society remains exactly the same. If you watch video from games from the 1950s, you see all the fans going to the games wearing uh, fancy clothes and and top hats, not top hats, but hats. We don't do that anymore. Uh, We dress more casually, and if we wear a hat, it's most likely to be a baseball cap. Uh, but, but so society does change and baseball changes along with it. In fact, in some ways, baseball has probably changed more because of the group of people in the game. The game's much more global than it was before. And, uh, and really at this point in the last few years, the game's younger than it was. So there's going to be changes and there will always be changes, but there's also, you're right. Sometimes a little bit of resistance to change. And one of the, Fascinating chapters early on in the book. Uh, from a team standpoint, you you, spoke, you took a lot of time speaking with managers and players and a lot of people involved in the game. Um, but when when speaking with like Hall of Famers like Trevor Hoffman and even current Major League managers, they they talk about the importance of culture in the clubhouse. And for White Sox fans, we think of 2016 when it comes to clubhouse culture and think of what happened with Adam LaRoche and Chris Sale cutting up uniforms. Uh, do you think that after writing this book that a clubhouse's culture could be a difference between a, a winning ball club and a losing one? Yes and no. Uh, I, I don't think it overwhelms talent. If you don't have the talent, you're probably not going to win. And if you do have the talent, now a really poor culture in the clubhouse could hurt that. I, I know Phil Garner, who managed uh, – the Tigers for uh, and the Astros and the Brewers. A lot of times he would say, you know, people talk about good clubhouse culture and it goes, it goes along with winning. Usually when you win, you get good clubhouse culture. I, I do think that that's not always true. There are, I, I don't think it's easy to have a really good clubhouse culture when you're losing. 
If you do, you probably it probably isn't that great anyway because it probably means the players don't care as much as you want them to. Uh, and there are teams that win that fight all the time. I mean, Garner played for the Oakland A's of the 70s, the, the, and, and they would fight all the time. But when it came to playing the game on the field, they would get together and play it. Uh, so I, I think it makes it easier because players are together for so long. You have to remember with baseball, because of the everyday nature of it, because of how long spring training is, these players from the middle of February to at least to the end of September, and obviously you hope to the end of October if you're a good team, are together with each other more than they're with their families. And it's much more that way than with any other uh, of our sports. Players spend more time at the ballpark than NFL players do in the NFL locker room or NBA or NHL. They're together all the time. And the road trips are longer. And if you don't get along, it can it can be a long, long season, especially if you're losing. But sometimes that goes together. Now, one of my favorites to watch in the last two decades was Adrian Beltre. And Beltre's got a chapter in your book. And one of the reasons, not just because Beltre is great, but one of my re- reasons why he was one of my favorites to watch is that he was incredibly entertaining. The stuff with Elvis Andrews on the field, literally moving the on-deck circle, uh, his smiles and you know the joking on the field. It was very entertaining as a fan to watch. And in the book, he mentions that there was always a line, and he never wanted to take yes. his antics too far. And you wrote a line, do it the right way, and it's absolutely all right to have fun playing the game. What is the right way, Danny? It's understanding that there's a place for everything. Uh, And one of the stories that I I talk about in the book with Beltre, and it happened last year and, and Beltre, obviously he played in Seattle for quite a while and he was very good friends with Felix Hernandez still is. And in a game in Arlington last year, he hit her. Felix Hernandez struck him out, made him look really bad. Two strike breaking ball. He wasn't ready for took a terrible swing at it. And they kind of both laughed because they're such good friends. And, and it was a, such a goofy looking swing, but it was an early part in the game. Well, later in the game, Beltre hit a home run off Felix. And normally he would have probably done something. They probably would have looked at each other, but he put his head down and ran around the bases. And the reason was was because it was one of the worst games Felix had had in, probably in his career. He, I think he'd given up nine runs. I don't remember the exact number, but he'd given up a lot of runs. It was it was re- he was really struggling. And Beltre understood this wasn't the time to to make a joke of it. Not when your friend is struggling. Not when you got the other team down like that. Just leave it for a different time. And I think a lot of this comes down to, and a lot of the unwritten rules come down to one word, which is respect. Players and coaches talk a lot about showing respect, show respect for the game, show respect for your opponents, show respect for the uniform. Well, Beltre understood you can have fun, but you also need to respect what's going on. And you have to understand that. And one of the things, John Daniels, general manager of the, uh, of the Rangers, I talked to him about this with Beltre. And they said, do, do you, Beltre, in some ways, 
he said, is the best example possible for his younger players. But in other ways, he worried about it just a little bit because he worried that maybe they wouldn't understand when it's okay to do things. And Beltre learned that early in his career. He'll tell you he didn't do show nearly as much emotion on the field. He didn't have nearly as much fun in the game. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed it inside. As he went on, he learned and he, he's a very smart guy. He learned when it was going to be acceptable and when it might offend somebody and don't do it. You won't see the, some of the clowning around things on the bases. You won't see, you wouldn't see him do that in the ninth inning of a one run game. You'd see him do it earlier on. You'd you'd find a way he would find a way to do it at a time when it would lighten the atmosphere, not when it would take away from the game. Now, for us Sox fans, we roll our eyes a bit when people say that Javier Baez of the Cubs is today's most exciting player to watch. Which, <laughs> hey, he's on he's on the cover of your book. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to all Sox fans and Cardinals fans, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> with Beltre retiring. Is Javier Baez the best example of symbolizing the change in culture in today's game? I believe he is. And I I know I can fully understand why any Sox fan, Cardinals fan, someone who hates the Cubs, which there's quite a few of, obviously, why they wouldn't like to hear that and why they wouldn't want to agree with it necessarily. But if it's possible to take that emotion out of it and just watch him play. He he has fun with the game and he brings, I wrote last year for Bleacher Report, a story about bias. And I believe that as baseball is trying and working very hard to attract younger fans, bias is exactly the type of guy who they need. Now it may very well be, that he's, as he develops, that Tim Anderson becomes a guy like that too. Because you got another guy with a good personality who's willing to show some good emotion on the field, but he hasn't yet gotten to the point where he's... Uh, Baez was in the MVP race last year in the National League. Didn't end up winning it, but he was in the MVP race. If Anderson gets to that point, maybe he's that same kind of guy too. Now, I'm a pro bat flip guy. I love waking up each morning, Danny, and watching the bat flip of the day from the Korean Baseball League because those guys take it to a whole different level. Uh, Obviously, some listeners are not pro bat flip, so if they had anyone to blame for where did bat flipping begin, where does that journey begin for baseball? I don't know that anyone knows exactly where it began, but one of the earliest documented bat flips was actually one of the, a guy you wouldn't have expected, Tom Lawless of the Cardinals, in the 1987 uh, World Series against the Twins. And he went out there and hit a home run. It actually didn't go over the wall by that much. But he flipped his bat, and he flipped it good. If you haven't seen it, it's worth calling up on YouTube. It's really uh, quite a flip. And there at the time, it wasn't done as much. Now, I watched a lot of tape when I was working on the book of home run hitters and how they reacted. Reggie Jackson, for example, because Reggie certainly showed plenty of emotion when he hit a home run, but he didn't really so much flip as bad as kind of uh, dramatically drop it maybe. Uh, but 
as things went on, the idea of flipping the bat in the air became much more popular. And at first, in a lot of situations, there was some resistance to it. But there were also times when they celebrate. Another thing worth watching on YouTube is a promotional uh, video that the Mariners did one time with Brett Boone and celebrating his bat flips and showing him going around his house and brushing his teeth and then flipping the toothbrush and things like that <laughs> and, 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 and making, trying to you know enjoy it. And um, I, I'm with you. I, and, I, and I've changed a little bit on it. I would say when maybe a few years ago, when I saw a guy flip a bat after a walk or after a base hit or something, I thought, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I've gone a little bit the other direction now. And sorry to bring up a, a, another Cub, but it's the same situation. I, I, I talked to Chris Bryant about Javier Baez. And Chris mm-hmm. Bryant, very famously, does not flip his bat, no matter what. And what he said to me was, it has to be part of your own personality. It has to be genuine. That he said, if, if Javi Baez tried to be me, meaning Chris Bryant, it wouldn't be genuine. And if I tried to be him, it wouldn't be. That when it's part of your personality and the way you play the game, and when it's in good nature, when it's not, I, I thought one of the quotes I, I read from Tim Anderson that I liked the most was when he was talking about flipping the bat against the Royals, he made a point and you could see on the, I watched the video of it a few different times and you could see the intent there. He turned toward the Sox dugout. He made clear that he was celebrating this with his team and he wasn't throwing it in the face of the Royals. And I think that's an important part. In fact, on the back cover of the book, we have the picture of Rugnet Odor punching uh, Jose Bautista. And I talked to Bautista a uh, uh, fair, fair length about that bat flip in the playoffs against the Rangers. It was maybe one of the more mm-hmm. famous bat flips of all time. And I know there are some people who believe that he turned towards the Rangers as he did it. And because nobody would dispute that that was in a gigantic situation in the game. And I know the Royals had the problem with, with Anderson saying, well, wait, it was early in a game. And why, you know, why, how is it that big a home run? Nobody is going to dispute that Bautista's home run was a big home run, but there were some questions about the way he did it. Now, when I watched that video and I watched it, I saw it live, but I've watched it. I don't know how many times since. I have a hard time seeing that he's really showing up the Rangers. It not not given the situation. And Bautista, when I talked to him, made that very strong point. He believed strongly that he wasn't turning towards the Rangers or doing it in their face, that it was just a matter of here's a gigantic home run that's gonna win a playoff series for my team and I'm gonna celebrate it. And I, 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 when you talk about when is it acceptable and when is it not, there's no question. I think three things. I think who you are has something to do with it. I think the time, the situation for the home run, both time of the game, time of the season, et cetera. And then third thing is how you do it. Do you make it about your own team and your celebration or do you turn around 
and basically right. shove it in somebody's face. Now, pitchers retaliating has been encouraged in the past, and maybe it's still being encouraged by teams yes. today. <laughs> And Jim Margulis, the co-host of the show, we, we've talked about this over the years. We can't think of anyone that was maybe borderline abusive about retaliation pitches than Nolan Ryan. In today's baseball, if Nolan Ryan was pitching today, yes, would he be considered in a completely different light? Here, here's what I would say about that. I think that if he went and pitched the way he did then, yes, he probably would be. But if Nolan Ryan were in today's game, I think it's reasonable to expect that he would be more like some of the pitchers today. Players play in their own era and their and their own the culture of the game as it is when they're playing. In the culture that Nolan Ryan came up with, it was much more acceptable to throw at a hitter. If he had just give if if you'd just given up if he'd hit the ball hard off of you, that's not nearly as acceptable now. And in fact, I think it very rarely happens now. And in the few cases when it does, most of the voices about it, the Jose Urena last year against the against Ronald Acuna, that most cases play people and players in the game side and even a lot of retired players side with the hitter and say that's not acceptable now whether ryan would do the same things now i I wonder i I, there's no way to know but as part of his era he was you're right as strong a an example of that as there was but it wasn't out of the ordinary in that era for someone to do it Whereas I think that would be now. In Danny's new book, again, Unwritten Bat Flips, The Fun Police and Baseball's New Future. It's available at your local bookstore or you can buy it online at Amazon.com. For our listeners that live in New York, you're going to be having a, a special event at Foley's on May 16th. I am. What's that all about? Yes. We'll just we'll do a book signing and a little bit of a party and uh, talk. we can talk about the book, talk about baseball. Foley's, if anybody... Any baseball fan from anywhere who comes to New York and goes, whether they go to a game here or not, if they're a baseball fan, they should stop by Foley's on 33rd Street. Sean Clancy does a great job. Uh, he, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's an Irish bar, but it's really a baseball bar. And he's got tons of memorabilia in there. There's always a lot of baseball people that come in there. He'll, he'll always have during the season, he'll always have baseball games on TV from many. He'll put any game you want on there. And uh, it's a fun place. And so we're going to get have a, just a little get-together. And anybody who wants to talk, anybody who wants to get the book, get the book signed. Uh, if they're in New York, if they happen to be in New York, it's a great, uh, it's a great time to do it. If, if not, you can reach out to me uh, via uh, Twitter at Danny Nobler, K-N-O-B-L-E-R or on my Facebook page uh, at Danny Nopler author. And uh, if you, if, if you're looking for a signed copy of the book, I can find a way to, to uh, get one. Well, that's awesome. Well, congratulations on the new book. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the show and talking about bat flipping. It's one of our favorite topics the last couple of weeks. Uh, it was a joy to read and best of luck uh, with the book, Danny. Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh and, uh, and, and hopefully there'll be uh, more bat flips to talk about in the future because they're fun.
Welcome to the Minor League Report. We're going to start with some roster shuffling. Joel Booker was rewarded for leading the Southern League in hitting over the first three weeks of the season, as he was promoted to Charlotte and made his AAA debut on Sunday. The Barons needed to promote an outfielder to make room for Luis Basabe, and Booker was the only one worthy. He hit 351 with a 400 on base percentage and 446 slugging percentage, and succeeded on 8 of his 10 stolen base attempts. Booker went 0-4 with a walk, 2 strikeouts, and a stolen base in his night's debut, which was another high-scoring affair. Charlotte lost 9-8, which also happened to be the average score of a Charlotte Knights game this week. They went 3-3 while scoring 49 runs, because they allowed 52 of them. You can pin some of it on the switch to the Major League Baseball at AAA Leagues, and it's great news for hitters, with Zach Collins having a four-digit OPS and Charlie Tilson hitting over 350. The only guy not getting in on it was Sebi Zavala, who went on the injured list with a recurrence of his wrist injury. But all this offense is not great for the pitching staff. Even Dylan Cease got touched up over his last two starts, although he told Josh that he has some ideas on how to adjust. You know, same old, keep my head on the target, be aggressive, but uh, specifically, uh, I need to throw my off-speed harder, so okay. I'm, I'm going to look for my off-speed to play up a tick or two. Any particular reason that maybe they're just picking it up out of your hand faster here? Um, no, it's just more, it's more of, I think I can make it better, it can be sharper. Okay. Um, you know, really, my last two outings, my, my, the outing before my last one was my worst one, and my last one, even though the numbers weren't good, I actually wasn't too terribly displeased with it so okay um you know really it's just staying on course and continuing to fine-tune everything but uh yeah that'll be that'll be something i'm looking to do in birmingham the barons got basabe back and he provided an immediate boost after being held to a total of seven runs over a six-game losing streak the barons scored seven runs in victory on sunday that's overstating basabe's contribution as there are still major gaps all over the barons lineup Luis Gonzalez and Taekwon Forbes are getting their heads above water, but Mike Rodolfo and Gavin Sheets are struggling, and Blake Rutherford is sinking. Jimmy Lambert is still pitching like a man who wants to be promoted, and he's about the only one reaching a next level right now, what with Bernardo Flores regressing and Cody Medeiros walking a batter an inning. Felix Paulino, acquired from the Phillies last August in the Luis Avalon trade, is making himself a little bit interesting with a 3-10 ERA and six innings a start. Down in Winston-Salem, Luis Robert missed five games with a bruised hand, then came back and struck out in eight of his first nine at-bats. He closed out the week with a winner, going one for two with the seventh homer, a walk, a stolen base, and no strikeouts. Regarding the good kind of strikeouts, Alec Hansen is up to 18 of them over 10 innings in relief. He's allowed just one hit and two walks over this time. And down in Kannapolis, the worst of Bryce Bush's struggles might be behind him, in a new position in front of him. He entered the week batting 0-96 with 9 errors in 10 games at third, but he spent most of the week at DH, and he responded by hitting safely in all 7 games, going 10 for 25 with 2 triples, a double, and more walks than strikeouts. When he returned to defensive action on Sunday, he started in right field. That might be the way forward for him. Likewise, Luis Curbelo has an 8-game hitting streak, raising his average from 111 to 209 over that time. It's not all good news, as London Soso went 3 for 33 this week, and Amado Nunez is scuffling as well. Steel Walker remains above it all, too good for the level. Zach Birdie should be too good for the level, and it appeared that way when he struck out the side in his 2019 debut. In two subsequent outings spaced three days apart, he's given up a couple hits in each, leading to three runs. The webcasts haven't had any radar gun readings for him, save one slider at 88 miles per hour. There's some good news on the pitching front, though, with Connor Pilkington still cruising, and Davis Martin getting on track with an 11 strikeout performance. That's a wrap for the report. Now let's answer your questions in P.O. Socks. Whether you're buying a new car or used one, it's a big investment, which is why you should choose Pennzoil Platinum. 
It helps extend the life of your engine and protect it up to 15 years or 500,000 miles, whichever comes first, guaranteed. That's because Pennzoil's base oil is made from natural gas and 99.5% free from engine-clogging impurities. The proof is in the Pennzoil. Enrollment required? Keep your receipts. Other conditions apply? See Pennzoil.com warranty for full details. Find it at Firestone Complete Auto Care. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show because you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, and helping support the show and the website by becoming a friend, signing up at patreon.com slash Sox Machine as Jim and I reconvene on the show, and the first question in our mailbag, Jim, I think is a very timely one. And this comes from Socks and Swimming. And they're asking, why, if the strength of the farm system is the outfield, did the team play Jose Rondon in left field? When do we see the new call-ups instead of players we have seen before or out-of-place odd moves? I think the strength of the farm system is in the outfield, but it's not in AAA. I think the strength is more in AA with Luis Gonzalez, Luis Basabe, with, uh, with well, Blake Rutherford's not hitting well, but or Mike Rodolfo scuffling. But, you know, that's kind of where the cluster is. Teal Walker should be able to join that. Luis Robert can join that. So that's where the, the strength is, but it's not on the doorstep of the majors yet. And the guys who are on the doorstep or, you know, trying to stick Eloy Jimenez, Ryan Cordell, and you know, Nikki Delmonico and, and Daniel Polk already missed on their first chances, might, but might get another look. You know, they're all being cycled through right now, but I think Ron Doan is not a bad guy to give it bats to. Uh, he's out of options and, uh, you know, that's why he's on the roster. But yeah, if he's out of options and the White Sox, you know, maybe give him 200 plate appearances over the course of the season, you're still dealing with the same question, you know, again, after the season, you know, is he better than we've been, is he better than we know? You know, is, uh, would he do better with regular playing time? And so I think by giving him, you know, these bats wherever they can find him, I, I'm, I'd be fine if they gave him, you know, uh, reps at second and, and let, uh, Yolmer, uh, you know, be on the bench for a bit, uh, just to see what he does there. But if, you know, they can give him every day at bats and left, it'll, they'll learn something about Ron Doan and, and, uh, you know, what his bat ultimately offers. The power came out of nowhere last year, so there is reason to think like, hey, there might be more improvement if we see him more often at the plate. So uh, while they're working through this, and I think, you know, at least for the first couple weeks, I think, you know, going through Cordell and Rondon and giving them as many opportunities as possible to let them struggle, let them try to punch themselves out the ropes if they get, uh, you know, cornered. Uh, I think that's uh, what uh, is most productive when using those bats. And then, you know, after that, then, you know, maybe you'll go to Charlie Tilson or maybe you'll go to, uh, uh, I, I don't think uh, Joel Booker will be ready, but theoretically if Booker hits like he did uh, in the Southern League and, t- and takes up Charlotte, you know, maybe he's somebody they can cycle through, even though they'd have to open up the 40-man roster. But, you know, there are other guys they can go to before Jimenez gets back. But if Rondon hits like he did last year in terms of power and, you know, gains a little bit, whether it's from his hit tool or, you know, plate discipline when it comes to his OBP, you know, there might be a player there. And I think it's worth exploring that. Do you think this strategy of moving players or handing on to guys like Jose Rondon and Nicky Delmonico that this ends next year? 
when those top outfield prospects reach either Birmingham or Charlotte? I think that's the hope. <laughs> and uh, uh, as we've seen with other areas, you know, especially pitching with all the ways, you know, with uh, you know, Kopech and Dunning having Tommy John surgery, that you know, even the best laid plans can get blown up and go under the knife. So uh, I, I think that's the hope is that, you know, Basabe, that he gets back past the hand injury and, you know, he might even earn a call up at the end of the season, but you know, at the very least he's uh, starting in Charlotte and looks prime for a, um, you know, an everyday spot come May, if not earlier than that, um, you know, and, and then other outfielders follow suit too. So I think that's the idea. And this is the last year, you know, fingers crossed of, these auditions for quadruple A players. Our next question comes from Kyle and Kyle is asking, what do you think it will take for the White Sox to call up Charlie Tilson and demote Adam Engel? Charlie is raking in triple A and we have definitely seen all that Adam Engel can offer at the big league level. Well, I think everybody is raking Charlotte kind of, uh, you know, Delmonico is hitting really well there. Uh, Tilson's hitting really well. Zach Collins is, is doing well. Uh, it's a weird environment right now. Uh, even Daniel Polk is doing all right. So, um, I don't know what to make of Tilson's numbers. I think it's important that they are up because he had a miserable year last season. and, And the fact that he's hitting it all in Charlotte is a great sign. And, uh, so there's that. Uh, I think the, you know, the previous two games where the White Sox had late leads or the White Sox, you know, had in, in case of uh, uh, Sunday's game, they had an early lead and were able to uh, to nurse it all the way through the end. I think that's what Angle is there for. What they really want Angle to be there for is have other guys play center field or left field or whatever. And then when you have a lead, Angle's a good guy to bring in and nobody hates seeing him in center field in the eighth inning when the White Sox are up a couple runs. Problem is, you know, the White Sox being a rebuilding team, they're not often in that position. Uh, and, and when White Sox fans see Angle, it's with two runners on and two outs when they could use a hit. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a weird, uh, I guess what the White Sox want from him and what fans want from him are completely different ends right now. And I am, you know, curious by, say, the first week of May, should Tilson put up, you know, a solid month all the way through and you know he doesn't have like an 0 for 15 streak that sinks his numbers but he's actually hitting you know 350 getting on base playing he's not a good center fielder i don't think but uh at least he can stand there and 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 rotate with larry garcia to where you shift the liabilities around and don't feel that bad about it but uh you know i I think you know he might be worth giving an audition to i think the uh you know one thing is you need a 40-man roster spot and john jay you know if he's not ready yet and there's no signs of him having a timetable i wonder if they could shift him to the 60 man or 60 day il to uh open up a roster spot temporarily at least uh that might be one option but uh mm-hmm. you know should it come to the point where you know they are able to make room for tilson and angle is sent down i, I would be kind of fascinated to see angle in triple a the way i was fascinated to see gordon beckham in triple a <laughs> like uh somebody who got you know a lot of run in the majors you know a lot more run than they deserved didn't go down, uh, and then they you know, head back to AAA and really didn't stand out and didn't get called up until you know, a couple of years later. I could see the same thing happening to Angle because he's never hit at AAA, and if you have you know him go down and he's you know hitting 220 with a 300 on base percentage and 350 slugging, and all these guys are are out hitting him handily, you know, does he come back? Do the White Sox you know can the White Sox bring him back? Do they want to? It would be a fascinating thing. I'd like to see them explore. 
uh, because Angle will kind of just uh, otherwise just be around forever and just kind of be a thorn in the side for everybody. But uh, it's it's one of those developments that you know has been so long in the uh, in the making that you know when it happens. I just wonder if that means they're, you know, if they give up on him, are they prepared to give up on him for good? Because that's something that might happen, given that he's never hit a triple-A. Yeah, the clock is ticking, right? When Luis Robert gets back on his pace that he was previously before getting hurt with his hand contusion, and he joins Birmingham, if he starts raking in Birmingham, I mean, the end is near for Adam Engel's time as center fielder for the White Sox because the future long-term center fielder is inching closer to Chicago. And with Charlie Tilson watching him in person, I agree with you, Jim. He's not a very good center fielder. Often gets caught flat-footed on initial reactions when the ball is hit to dead center field. I think he's better at left field. But speaking to him before the game, uh, he feels that he's made a lot of improvements. And he's really focused on driving the ball more, and he doesn't want to use missing a year and a half as an excuse on why his performance has really dropped off even when he got an opportunity to play in Chicago and then he was taken off the 40-man roster and sent back to AAA. But he just seems to be at a good place mentally, and it's starting to show on the field. And I agree with you, John Jay. I mean, the White Sox need to make a decision on him. They cannot keep... I just don't think it's worthwhile using a 40-man spot for a guy you're not entirely sure if they're ready to play. I mean, if you put him on the 60-day DL, can you retroactive that? Yes. Okay. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Give yourself 38 guys, and then you can use John Jay's spot for Charlie Tilson, add him back onto the 40-man roster, and then go from there. Uh, But it's a very good question, Kyle, and we'll see how the White Sox handle it in the next couple of weeks, especially if another outfielder were to get an injury, uh, then it'll be get, it'll be very interesting to see how the White Sox handle that. Uh, maybe we'll even see Daniel Polka return back to Chicago. Our next question comes from Spencer, and Spencer is asking, with the longest tenured White Sox being the injured Nate Jones, who will be the longest tenured player in 2025, and please don't say Adam Engel. Adam Engel. Oh. <laughs> no, uh, it's probably going to be Tim Anderson, I think. Uh, All right. I think the, he's probably the most obvious case, and it's the least creative one, but he is under contract, at least including club options, through uh, 2024. He's got a $14 million club option, and he doesn't seem like the kind of player that will be coveted around the league like somebody like Yohan Mankata might. Yohan Mankata being the top prospect pedigree, uh, having the combination of play discipline and power. You know, playing a pretty good third base so far. I think if he looks like a rock-solid third baseman then and, and the White Sox can't uh, get him to a contract extension and, you know, should the rebuild not work out and uh, basically how we saw it play out with the great contracts that they had before, I could see the White Sox trading him and getting a great return. I don't see Anderson having that kind of return potential at that point. So, yeah, uh, if it doesn't work out and Anderson's hanging around, I could see him being kind of like the Jose Abreu type to where he's just, uh, the White Sox like what he offers. They have a good relationship. He's being paid appropriately. And, uh, you know, they're able to continue their relationship with another, either another contract extension that picks up the couple club options or, 
you know, what have you, and gets them past the 2025 mark. So I think that would probably be the most likely one. And, you know, given the health of pitchers and the, and, and all the, uh, uh, unpredictability there, uh, I don't see anybody else beating them. Spencer, thank you so much for your question. Thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for PO Sox. Again, as always, terrific questions by everyone. And if you have a question or a topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And you can help support the show and the website by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where Jim and I have our secret Game of Thrones. No, I'm sorry. I'm kidding. Uh, we do not have Game of Thrones recap episodes. But what we do have is additional content for you guys every single week, an opportunity to ask questions to our guests and even our Patreon supporters got an opportunity uh, to submit questions to me in which I asked Luis Robert and Charlie Tilson and Dylan Cease and Danny Mendek, and they'll be able to get those answers straight to them. So if that's something that you're interested in, you like our work and you want more of it, again, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up. And we still have pint glasses, right, Jim? Absolutely. Awesome. So if you want a socks machine pint glass, they are sexy. Again, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up. And that will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine Podcast. I want to thank our guest, Danny Nobler, for coming on the show. Again, buy his book. Uh, it's a very good read, and he does a good job of capturing on how the culture of baseball is changing and how it could possibly change in the upcoming future. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe in a number of ways. iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.